Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, colleagues, friends, and students, welcome. I'm Mona Siddiqui, Professor of Islamic and Interreligious Studies at the University of Edinburgh and a member of the Gifford Lectureship Committee. Once again, I'm delighted to welcome Lord Rowan Williams of Ostermouth to Edinburgh to give the sixth and final lecture in this distinguished Gifford series of six lectures. And the title today is Can Truth Be Spoken? The lecture this evening is being recorded and the video will be available online shortly on the Gifford website. This lecture is also being streamed live around the world. At the end of the lecture, Lord Williams has agreed to take a few questions, but we will cut the Q&A short as it's the final lecture. I now have great pleasure in handing you over to Lord Williams. Thank you very much. And may I take this opportunity of saying thank you again to the electors to the Gifford Lectureship and to all those who have extended such extraordinary hospitality and kindness to me during my visit in these last two weeks and have offered such very helpful and constructive comments on the material of these lectures. I begin once again with a quotation. Gentlemen of the jury, there are many kinds of silence Consider first the silence of a man when he is dead. Let us say we go into the room where he is lying and we listen. What do we hear? He listens intently. Silence. What does it betoken, this silence? Nothing. This is silence pure and simple. But consider another case. Suppose I were to draw a dagger from my sleeve and make to kill the prisoner with it. And suppose their lordships there, instead of crying out for me to stop or crying for help to stop me, maintain their silence. That would betoken. It would betoken a willingness that I should do it. So silence can, according to the circumstances, speak. Part of Thomas Cromwell's speech from the climactic trial scene in Robert Bolt's play A Man for All Seasons. And it vividly expresses the recognition that silence is not pure absence. One might well question his assumption that the silence of a room where a dead man is lying betokens nothing, but Thomas Cromwell is not a very reliable guide to such subtleties, even in Hilary Mantel's version. We can mean something by not doing or saying. Withdrawing from speech allows something to be communicated. But in Cromwell's phrase, this is according to the circumstances. We cannot imagine an unframed silence. We can only imagine the silence in which we are not hearing anything. That is, it will have to do with our expectations, our history and fantasy and so forth. Silence is always the gap that occurs here, in this specific place between words or images. Pictorially, silence is like the gap between the two winged creatures in the Jewish temple, which denoted the unrepresentable but not absent God. And considering silence in the context of the argument of these lectures so far, is considering how acts of what I've called framing silence may be said to represent anything. For some contemporary writers, of course, this is to ask absolutely the wrong question. For a good many 
eloquent postmodern commentators, the point about silence is that it undercuts representation itself. It repudiates language in the name of what is timeless and imageless. In a way that echoes some of the themes touched on earlier in this book, it sets against each other a linguistic world that's defined either by contests and negotiations over power or by play and improvisation, and a non-linguistic world that simply exposes the illusions of language. Those who know something of the work of Mark C. Taylor will know the kind of thing I'm talking about. Language is either ideology and manipulation or it's playful improvisation. Silence is both emancipatory and serious. But this is a dangerously absolute and even romantic notion of silence. I want to argue that to talk about silence is always to talk about what specifically we're not hearing or what we decide not to listen to in order to hear differently or what specifically we find we can't say. Silence betokens in the context of speech and image, which is not to deny or diminish the radical challenge silence can pose to speech, only to warn against a loose and even sentimental discourse about it which ignores the basic question of how silence actually and particularly criticizes and modifies speech and thus itself says something. No shortage of examples to provoke reflections. John Cage's famous 433 is a measured space of non-deliberate sound, the deliberate withholding of music in the usual sense so as to insist on another sort of listening. Not exactly silence in the strict sense, any more than someone meditating silently is absolutely silent. As with meditation, it's a space in which otherwise unheard sounds emerge and are attended to. In this particular context of John Cage, with the expectation of hearing music, we're obliged to hear something else and to become aware of the absence of music. Likewise, we might think of the silence of the psychoanalytic or psychother psychotherapeutic encounter. The analyst is trained in a rigorous withholding of comment or reaction so that a different sort of speech is drawn out of the analysand, a speech increasingly free from the need to shape and interact with the speech of another who needs to be engaged or impressed or wooed or resisted. Or silence can be felt to be the only possible response to a particular context of corrupted and facile speech. Just to make sure that I quote King Lear in more or less all these lectures, Cordelia, invited to declare how much she loves her father, expresses her despairing impotence in her aside, what shall Cordelia do? Love and be silent. Speaking would be to engage with a demand that should never have been made. And when she does speak, she can't find words to justify her silence in terms King Lear might understand. She is doubly silenced by her own unwillingness to say anything and by the response of incomprehension when she tries to articulate her unwillingness. And the point in the present context is that her silence is significant as a protest against the language she is being forced to speak. 
it's not that her silence as such is somehow a token of transcendent meaning. Or again, an example I've touched on in other contexts. Consider the silence at the end of a performance of a play or a piece of music. Performers and audiences will be familiar with the brief but pregnant moment before applause is allowed to break out. The longer such a silence lasts, the longer may be the subsequent applause. The moment of silence is, in one sense, what the performance has worked for. It has displaced the habits of an audience, the compulsion of the group to act or intervene. Stanley Cavell again. But this silence is precisely what the performance has made possible, or indeed made imperative. This silence is significant because of what has been said or done and is now not being said or done. And to turn to the most challenging and painfully the most hackneyed example, the often quoted axiom about the impossibility of poetry after the Holocaust, which tells us similarly that it is this utterly concrete historical atrocity that makes us silent here, now. Being silent here and now is something that, rather than being just an eruption of timeless quiet or non-sound, poses a question as to how this silence has been generated, how it is sensed and read as obliged, even commanded, how it has been coaxed, earned, imposed. It directs us back into the process that generated it and invites us to see something there that escapes whatever categories seemed most appropriate for talking in that specific context. It doesn't just cancel what has been said or indeed sung. It loosens the texture of this preceding activity and tells us that there's something we have not captured and are not likely to. In a teasing and very suggestive piece written for a symposium entitled Apology for Quietism, published in the periodical Common Knowledge, the Russian-American philosopher and critic Michael Epstein proposed that we needed a symbol to indicate that within a text the presence of the margin was being invoked. And he proposes a blank space between two quotation marks. This sign, he writes, transforms the environment of the text into one of its components, a new sign that functions among other textual signs. In contrast to particular words for the non-conditioned environment which makes particular utterance possible, in contra contrast to words like absolute, it is not an utterance with a home in any one language. The space between the inverted commas is not a space in Latin or Cyrillic or oriental script. It enacts this non-conditioned environment within the text by being just as blank as the margin is. It is, he says, the equivalent of a pause. All forms of discourse need in some way to present the conditions within which they operate, yet they cannot make those conditions into signs like others. Any such presentation has to be, in his words, sequestered from representation. Thus the sign, the space between the marks, both exposes and conceals, and has the effect of, I quote, marginalizing the center, centralizing the periphery, 
voicing the mute, uncovering and advancing suppressed layers of culture. Because it escapes any definitive translation into more conventional signs, there's no one word that will render it adequately for all contexts, it brings us up against the unavoidable defeat of any aspirations to an all-sufficient and universal language, and so disrupts textuality as such. Thus, it puts in question specific ideological interests, claims to final and definitive power exercised through words, and thus transforms our relationship with what we say and what we think and what we think we say. All this is persuasively said. The only hesitations we might have are to do with the implied contrast yet again between presenting and representing, a contrast that relies on understanding representation only or primarily as imitation, reproduction, and so on, and also with the lack of focus in Epstein's text on where exactly such a paradoxical sign is located. It doesn't just drop in from nowhere. It can't be introduced just anywhere in an utterance. There must be something that calls for it. And if that's the case, it's indeed a calling into question of any and all ideological ambition, but is also a historically situated challenge. As I've suggested, it's a silence that has an identifiable significance as calling into question this utterance at this moment, which is a particularly important aspect of how we are to understand silence. If we just value silence or absence as such, the timeless void, we risk implying that wherever silence occurs, it is a manifestation of an otherness pregnant with depth and critical force. But what about the silence of those who have been silenced, whose presence has been denied? This is why we can understand, I think, the vehement protest quoted by Sarah Maitland in her wonderful book of silence from one of her friends. There is no silence without the act of silencing, someone having been shut up. Silence is oppression, and speech, language, spoken or written, is freedom. All silence is waiting to be broken, so says Sarah's friend. And a former Gifford lecturer, in a comprehensive and imaginative overview of the meanings of silence in Christian history, lays out with detail and precision some of the ways in which silence has been a strategy for survival for various minorities, ethnic, creedal, and sexual, and a strategy for denial in respect of the memories and the reality of child abuse, slavery, anti-Semitism, and all other kinds of violence towards those silenced or self-silencing minorities. These corrosive forms of silence, says Dermot McCulloch, are not unique to Christians. I quote, they are products of how human beings construct the world around them and negotiate their way through the embarrassments and opportunities created by our search for power and control over others and over ourselves. But it is uncomfortably true that a religious culture which values silence as such may be able to find something edifying in such corrupt and corrupting silences, as if the retreat into an absence of words were itself healing or absolving. But any such retreat serves only those whose abuse of power, whose abuse of speech, 
needs to be named. To find one's voice is universally a phrase we use to describe emancipation, because the denial of this is so manifestly a privation not only of mutual relationship, but of the fundamental ability of human speakers to affect their world, to confer as well as to receive meaning. And it's that, and that alone, which makes sense of the way in which a self-chosen silence, in certain circumstances, can be so radical a self-denying gesture. There are stories of early Christian monks, stories too of Buddhist monks, accepting in silence as a form of ascetic denial accusations of rape or violence until events vindicate them. There's the refusal of Margaret Clitheroe to plead when accused under Elizabeth I's draconian anti-recusant laws of harboring Catholic priests, a silence which effectively condemns her to death. There's the silence of Paul Scott's tragic Indian protagonist, Hari Kumar, in the Raj Quartet, when charged with raping the white woman with whom he's been tentatively establishing a relationship, because she has told him, say nothing. All these are instances of self-chosen silence, bringing scandal and suffering that is accepted as somehow imperative, even desirable, perhaps reparative, instances of giving meaning to the experience of injustice. Yet the fact that silences like these can be given meaning by a speaker's choice doesn't make any sort of silencing good or justifiable. The examples I've mentioned are instances of silence acquiring meaning from particular things not said, sometimes from a refusal to compromise or endanger another, or a refusal to engage in burnishing a self-image. Where silence comes in is all important, so that we can't in fact discuss it without the closest attention to the speech it interrupts or refuses. Its betokening is about some dimension of what has been or might be said or done. And it points, just like the examples of extreme speech we were discussing on Tuesday, to the excess of world over word. I've reflected at several moments on the central importance of difficulty in the experience of speaking subjects and on the inescapable unfinishedness of speech. And the way in which silence comes in should be something to do with admitting the most formidable level of difficulty. And that is why silence as evasion or denial is such a monstrosity, because that is silence used to make things easy. If we were just to say that language was insupportably compromised and inadequate to truth-telling, and that pure silence, inverted commas for pure, was the alternative place to seek truth or transparency, we should risk losing sight of the fact that it is speech that points into silence and is itself altered by it. Let me pick up again a point touched on earlier in these lectures the late Dewey Phillips, in a controversial passage in one of his early books, protests against the idea that we should think of language itself as somehow inadequate. Now, he wasn't suggesting that our language should recognize no limits. He was arguing against the rather loosely phrased commonplace that words 
cannot express the transcendence of the divine or the mysteriousness of life beyond the grave, so that we ought to be able to get rid of language in order to perceive or encounter truth. In response to criticism, he explained, he was just pointing to the fact that it is language itself that presents mystery. I quote from him, language is not a screen which hides God from us. On the contrary, the idea of God in the language we have been explaining is the idea of a hidden God. To use an example Dewey Phillips was fond of, if I say, I can't tell you how grateful I am, I'm telling you how grateful I am. I'm not claiming that my gratitude is inherently mysterious or transcendent, accessible only in radical abstention from all speech. I'm just saying that it is of an order that makes it difficult to articulate it in any specific formulation without slipping into cliché and staleness. This difficulty is what I'm now naming. The fact that language cannot and does not offer simple and exact representation of its subject matter, credible imitations, we might say, of the world, doesn't mean that it's somehow not fit for purpose. But for Phillips's point to be clear, we need, I think, a more flexible account of what we mean by representation, and something Phillips doesn't quite provide, a clearer picture of language not as a system for reproducing impressions, but a system of variegated material responses to its environment, some of which responses are gestures towards that excess of environmental stimulus over conventional representation, which I've been discussing throughout these lectures. Thus, there's not some super-linguistic order of speech or being in which something other and better than language will be available as a medium of knowing or encountering nor is my gratitude something defying language. This is one way in which language copes with this sort of difficulty, by naming the bare fact that it's difficult. I can't tell you how grateful I am. And this naming of the difficulty is what may motivate us to look at the story behind an effusive expression of thanks. Why is there something about this which resists conventional forms and cliches? which takes us back to the silence at the end of a play or a concert. If this is prolonged a second or two beyond the conventional pause, we may in due course be prompted to go back and revisit what it was in the performance that resisted the obvious and expected response and prolonged the silence just that little bit beyond comfort. Philip Davis of Liverpool University, in a wonderful essay on the nature of reading, analyzes how imaginative writing creates what he calls a holding space. A focal space, I'm quoting, a focal space, a field which represents, notice the word, the nameless dilemma in order to create what we might call a holding ground for investigation and contemplation. Whether in literal silence, in the crafted pause, in the gap of transition between one stanza and the next in a poem, what is in view is a means of challenging and extending the normal fields of consciousness, making our awareness and our speech what Davis calls porous. And this can be a deeply unreassuring, alarming matter. 
Davis refers to another of Russell Hoban's works. I talked about Ridley Walker the other day. This time it's a shorter fantasy called Fremda. And in this book, we're introduced to a future world in which it's possible to teleport human individuals by the almost instantaneous dismantling and reassembling of their molecular structure. But the anxiety for someone who has experienced this, flick, this flicker effect is whether there is real continuity between one state and another, which is a strictly unanswerable question, since to answer it would require objective access to both the pre- and the post-teleportation state. If you're inside it, you don't have that opportunity. Electronic brain imaging is able, in this imagined world, to offer a picture of what's going on. But what it depicts in that flicker moment is an intermediate condition which suggests primal terror, a look into the black cosmic origin of things, quote. The observer, quoting from Hoban, the observer feels the particles of his self move apart a little, letting in the dark. The more we look at the dark, the more we sense the terror. But at the same time, it is in this darkness where the raw condition of the self is displayed in its imageless potential that the elements of the activities of thinking and representing are being generated. The dark gap indicates all that makes thought possible and indicates also the impossibility of thought adequately thinking its own origin. Which is not to say that we can't think into and out of this darkness or that it is nothing but absence or formlessness because it is what makes form happen. The stillness between words and acts, the gap where other energies than the conscious arise, is what actually keeps speech and thought moving. When we stop thinking, speaking, imaging, there is not a void, but a plenitude. And to recognize this is to recognize the strangeness of silence within speech as saying something that can't be brought to words in the ordinary sense, precisely representing what is not to be represented. Throughout these lectures, I've been assuming that human communication exists in the context of a communicative, meaningful environment, which can't be exhaustively mapped or articulated, but can in some sense be represented, though not by any simple addition to the sum total of representable objects. And silence, above all, in the form of something like Epstein's blank space of citation. Silence refers what is said to a hinterland of significance. We are always saying more than we entirely grasp, certainly more than we can securely ground. The peculiar peculiarities of language, which these lectures have tried to explore, are ways of indicating the scope of this hinterland a little further, in the full recognition of the fact that we're not thereby advancing towards a full, limitless, perspective-neutral account of the meanings we inhabit. And the point is in that word, inhabit. We occupy a meaningful space that is available to us prior to any specific human attempt, individual or corporate, at charting meaning. Or to put it more simply, we're involved in relations of communication before we realize it or realize them. Behind and within our speech, 
is what makes speech possible. The white margin, yes, but a white margin that shapes and is shaped by these specific utterances or meaningful acts. Language is therefore not some kind of fallen, distorting medium or activity. It is finite and historical, but not intrinsically corrupt. It's capable of truth-telling in the sense of representing what is not itself, or not the contents of some dematerialized mind, but telling the truth, often by indirection, by the admission of difficulty and limitation, and by its own scrutiny of its working and its learning. Silence, in the sense I've just been sketching, is thus the point on which all the features of language I've been looking at in these lectures finally converge. The non-determinate character of our speech means there's always a possibility of silence. If stimulus does not specify response, there will always be diverse possibilities of utterance and representation, including those that embody hesitation, gaps in the surface, paradox and development over time, as opposed to a single definitive act of naming. The unfinished character of language means that we're always aware of what has not yet been said, even if we have no way of knowing what it will be. Once again, a gap opens up within what we are saying between any utterance at any one time and the actuality to which the utterance witnesses or with which it seeks to be aligned. The admission of this gap and the waiting for what has not yet been said may manifest literally in silence or may simply be a perennial question mark, a habit of ironic acknowledgement of the margins. Language as embodied activity implies that not only gesture and noise, but sheer physical presence is in some way communicative. The silent physicality of a body or an object in certain circumstances is meaningful. That is, it establishes intelligible connection with what is not just the individual ego. And that's perhaps worth pausing on for a moment. <clears throat> Both images and physical spaces can act in this way, though it takes a fair amount of countercultural energy to do justice to this, given our preoccupation with what is meant to be verbally definitive. But the wordless deployment of physical signs may be the most adequate or the least inadequate testimony to the most intractably difficult of circumstances. Visitors to the Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem regularly say that the physical layout of the building is an integral part of the experience. The irregular pathways through it, the single candle reflected in a complex of mirrors to become an incalculably repeated signifier, and much more. The placing of a single bowl or flower in an empty room, the way in which the architecture of an old-fashioned Catholic church leads the eye towards the tabernacle where the sacrament is reserved, a powerful instance of a non-verbal sign. These likewise work on the assumption that what I've called intelligible connection happens when the normal verbal carriers are deliberately removed. David Jasper, in an intriguing study of the body and the sacred, notes how the religious icon realizes a kind of silence because, in his vocabulary, it acts as a threshold 
rather than a depiction. And he goes on to interpret some forms of early Christian asceticism as an essay in making the body itself a meaning-charged presence. The early Christian monks, he writes, sought absolute participation in the body of the Godhead at its deepest depths of humanity, at a point so far beyond the bearable in the absolute desert that its own deepest being met God as truly total absence wherein alone is total presence. In this utterly profane moment, there can be no severance of spirit from body, for the body, in all its physicality, now is nothing but spirit. Allowing for a bit of discomfort at the way in which David Jasper's rhetoric indulges the idea yet again of a cancelling of word and image rather than their relocation or radical opening up, there is, I think, a very important insight here about how the body, deprived of many of its normal means of imposing intelligibility on its environment, becomes intensely charged as a sign how the body itself speaks in a unique fashion. So this, I think, is where our whole discussion of the oddities of language poses for us most clearly the question of whether we can think with adequate imaginative reach about language itself without some reference to the sacred. If our language is systematically indeterminate, incomplete, embodied, developed through paradox, metaphor, and formal structure, and interwoven with a silence that opens up further possibilities of speech, this language is a reality which constant, consistently indicates a hinterland, as if it is always following on or always responding, living in the wake of or in the shadow of intelligible relations whose full scale is still obscure to us. To put it a bit more sharply, these aspects of language seem to show that we live in an environment where intelligible communication is ubiquitous where there is sense before we make sense. Nothing will establish beyond debate that this is not illusory, of course, but the fact of experienced difficulty in finding what to say, that simple fact to which I've returned regularly, obstinately challenges any denial that our language is in some way answerable for the sense it makes, the sense we decide to make. And if we put this in slightly different terms, we can see perhaps how it has some faint parallels with certain kinds of theistic argument. How might such parallels work? Well, what's been argued is that any particular utterance, any meaningful representation, is necessarily partial, even when presented in terms of general truthfulness. It may be truthful, but still capable of supplementary or alternative representation and there is no level of representation to which all others can be reduced. From one point of view, this might seem to mandate what William Downs, in his book on language and religion, which I've discussed once or twice before, calls a philosophy of uncertainty. I quote, The species mind can't tell in advance what can be naturalized and what cannot, or even to what degree a conceptual domain containing mysteries can be clarified philosophically or even poetically, over centuries of inquiry. And so, he says, we must refuse various tempting varieties of closure. Reverential abstention from questioning in the face of mystery, 
conviction that all apparent mysteries are just linguistic or conceptual malfunctions capable of being straightened out in due course with better mental equipment or incurious acceptance of the unresolved as just brute fact. But from another point of view, the insistent implication that wherever you ha happen to start thinking from, there is meaning elsewhere, suggests at the very least an order of intelligibility, a coherent pattern of mind that pervades the contingent objects of perception and speech, a universal pattern or structure of intelligible and intelligent life of the kind that Hegel posits and traces in his philosophy. In such a framework, truthful thinking is always a pattern of dispossession or displacement, an ascetical exercise that foregoes the ambitions of final mastery or the absorption of the object so as to allow our perception and response to be adequately shaped by what is extramentally there. And beyond this recognition of what truthfulness involves is the further question that might be put from the point of view of a traditional believer. Is not this something like what all understand to be meant by God, as Aquinas have put it? If the intelligent stroke intelligible life we find being gestured towards in this argument is properly active independently of all particular relations of knowing and representing, if it is that upon which the very idea of intelligible communication depends, it is clearly something whose reality must be in the ontological neighborhood of an unconditioned source of being, which is what all understand to be meant by God. Expressed in this way, this is an echo of Aquinas' arguments from contingency and necessity. And the relation between natural and revealed theology perhaps becomes a little clearer if we think carefully about the way in which this has just been framed. If reflection on language leads in a certain direction, it still needs an interlocutor to put the question that takes the argument to another level. If this discourse is insisting upon a pattern of intelligent or intelligible life, and if faith in revealed religion involves a belief in the sharing of one in in the sharing of intelligible structure from outside the system of finite concepts and objects, is there a convergence we can recognize? That's one of the basic questions of these lectures. If we're led to speak about human speech as located against the background of an active but imageless depth, which is intelligible in the sense that what it makes possible is intelligence, yet not intelligible in the sense that it can't be reduced to an item in the mind, the believer in Revelation may reasonably observe that the God alleged to speak in Revelation is quite well characterized by such formulations, active and mind-like, yet not representable as an agent among others. As in the case of Aquinas' arguments, we can't claim anything resembling a holy watertight argument. The substance of the argument is not at all about reasoning conclusively that a certain entity is bound to exist the kind of argument that Kant dismantles. It's more a matter of posing the question, if this is how we track the distinctive patterns of intelligible talk, whether talk about the interconnection of agents in the world or talk about our own talking, is there a match with what religious believers claim about God? 
to say this doesn't immediately mandate religious belief, let alone creating a religious attitude, adoration, humility, joy, penitence. But it brings us to the kind of potentially fruitful brick wall that I sketchily erected in the first lecture. We press a particular kind of discourse to its furthest point and confront the question of whether we're simply left with a problem wholly resistant to resolution or whether we're prompted to shift the level of our discourse. Examining our speech may bring us to the point where we recognize that language cannot describe or contain the conditions of its own possibility and that this is precisely the source of its energy, its movement, its capacity for correction, innovation, and imagination. Language behaves as if it were always in the wake of meaning rather than owning and controlling it. And so we have the alternatives of regarding this as a brute fact about our linguistic being or as something that indicates what we've called a hinterland of meaning imperfectly accessible to finite speakers or thinkers. But to do justice to this latter possibility, we have, of course, to be seriously careful about the sort of claims we make for any kind of talking about what it is that language is after. To repeat the point, we cannot represent this as an item within the sum total of things to be talked about. And if we seek to represent it at all, it must be by other and potentially eccentric strategies. The whole of the argument thus far has been to detach the idea of representation from depiction, description, imitation, and so on, and to underline the fact that any representation at all, not only representations of the unconditioned, may spill over into what a strictly descriptive approach to speech might see as eccentric linguistic behavior. If we're serious about our gesturing towards what it is that language is in the wake of, that intelligible environment we can recognize as intelligible but can't master, we shall need a repertoire of styles and idioms which undercut the possibility of understanding our speech as straightforward description. A huge amount has been written, ironically enough, about negative or apophatic theology in this connection. To borrow the language used many decades ago by Ian Ramsey in his work on religious language, work rather unfairly neglected, I think, in recent discussion, we develop a tension between what he calls models and qualifiers, words that have a currency in routine accounts of action in the world and expressions that qualify such words so as to make it clear that they cannot be, as he puts it, exact currency for God. But, as has been said especially by some Eastern Christian writers, this variety of negative theology in itself can sound like a conceptual game whose outcome is just a sort of definitional fastidiousness, as if we were just saying, well, not quite, about various predications concerning infinite agency. Modern Eastern Christian thought has argued that negative theology has to be a more radical business. It's about the ultimate silencing of both terms of the model and qualifier tension and the resignation of the mind or subject to sheer receptivity. It's the abandonment of all aspiration 
to definitive experience of God as God, whether through a supposed positive sense of God's presence or the felt lack of that specific sense. There is no object there to experience as we experience the contents of the world, which also means that a sense of God's absence is not like the sense of a missing element in our inventory of the world. Ultimately, what matters is that our thinking and feeling become decentered, dispossessed of controllable material. So the language of negative theology isn't just refining strategies for showing that such and such a phrase can't be exact currency for infinite agency. That's a helpful corrective, certainly, but it's a means rather than an end. In the first lecture, I touched briefly on the way in which the koan operates in some sorts of Buddhist discipline, as a means not of qualifying what's said, but of shifting the entire set of expectations around a discourse, blocking off certain ways of hearing what is said and opening others. So if we are looking for language that has this effect, we're looking or listening for language that focuses our minds on the need to be receptive if we are to be in touch with the truth in this context. If we are seeking a representation for unconditional action, the only way in which we can avoid distortion is ultimately to look for what's also a representation of our own incapacity to contain or describe. Richard Hooker famously wrote at the beginning of his Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, Dangerous it were for the feeble brain of man to wade far into the doings of the Most High, whom, although to know be life and joy to make mention of his name, yet our soundest knowledge is to know that we know him not as indeed he is, neither can know him, and our safest eloquence concerning him is our silence. He is above and we upon earth, therefore it behoveth our words to be wary and few. But as I've hinted, the actual sparseness of what we say, or indeed what we show in image or action, is only one vehicle for representing this incapacity. Some of the kinds of excess touched on in the previous lecture have the same effect. Displaying language under the stress of repetition, sustained paradox, metaphorical extravagance or oddity is also a way of representing what language cannot do as well as what it can. Not for nothing, to go back to this quote again, did that most elusive and teasing of mystical writers, Meister Eckhart, call God omni-nominabile, nameable in every way, as well as innominabile, not nameable at all? The test of naming God is whether what results is some sort of dispossession, some deepened capacity for receptive stillness. In a meditation on the role of silence in the liturgy, Maggie Ross writes, every true sacred sign effaces itself. That is, the sign of the sacred or unconditioned is one that refuses to absorb our gaze, our attention in itself, but undercuts itself, questions and relativizes itself, not as an intellectual riddle or an invitation to uncommitted curiosity, but as a way of bringing us into a different kind of awareness which points us back to some of what was said earlier about speech and the body. As David Jasper intimates, 
representing the unconditional, can happen through the silent body. Not the silenced body that speaks of someone else's dominance, someone else's bid to own the body and dictate its meanings. I think here of a work like Susan Griffin's classic Pornography and Silence. But the silence of bodily presence consciously entered upon, the intention to allow something to emerge that is more than the speaking mind's normal content. Similarly, the body engaged in ritual movement and gesture represents a dispossessed mind to the extent that it sets aside the usual model of moving so as simply to enact one's individual projects and meanings. And like ritual, music, which engages the body in a unique form of concentration and communication, has the same function of displacing individual agendas, easily formulated meanings. In all these ways, literal silence or immobility, ritual gesture, musical performance, the body can become a token, a representation of what is never thinkable as an object. And religious language that facilitates silence or that accompanies ritual or music effectively is bound in to the reality of the displaced or dispossessed body. It too shares in the distinctive and elusive representational work of silence or stillness. Against this background, I think it's possible to see why a religious tradition that refers to or rests upon claims to revelation isn't necessarily appealing to any crude model of divine utterance. The point might be argued with reference to various families of religious practice, but its application in the Christian context is particularly clear. In the Christian tradition, revelation begins precisely with a body, an active and speaking body, then a helpless and suffering body, then a dead body, then a body that is both significantly absent and at the same time believed to be present in very diverse modes, present as the community itself, present as the food the community ritually shares, present as the proclaimed narrative and instruction derived from the record of the literal flesh and blood body. In other words, the story of Jesus represents the unrepresentable God <clears throat> by tracing a movement towards silence and motionlessness within the human world. Its climax is not a triumphant theophany, but a death and its complex aftermath, given that the resurrection is not just a public triumph. The story sets up the expectation of divine manifestation and then fleshes it out by telling a story of power and liberty being evacuated. And whatever else St. Paul does with the history of Jesus, this dimension is strongly maintained and affirmed by him. In both the first and the second letters to the church at Corinth, we see the same movement being traced the inexplicable or humiliating failure, void, interruption of control that is seen in the death of Jesus establishes the key in which the believer, and for Paul especially the believing teacher or pastor, has to live and die. The apostolic representation of God becomes, like Jesus' own representation of God, a matter of finding significance in silence or in speech that is some way broken and awkward 
not in a fantasy of ideal articulacy. articulacy. St. Paul famously congratulates himself on his lack of physical presence and fluency, so that there should be no confusion between his performance and God's agency. Centuries later, St. John of the Cross, writing in 16th century Spain about the most acute stages of dispossession in the life of the spirit, describes the crucified Jesus as, quote, at the moment of his death, reduced to nothing in his soul with no comfort and no alleviation. And he goes on, and so in this, he performed the greatest work of his entire life with all its miracles and great deeds in earth or in heaven. And that was to reconcile and unite the human race with God through grace. The emptying out of merely created will, purpose, sensation, hope, and so on, allows something to be manifest and effective that is not part of the sequence of created cause and effect. Hence, for St. John of the Cross, the essential importance of the fact that in prayer and discipleship, the believer at some point meets the most intractable frustration, the non-experience that moves us out of our usual expectations, ideas, and pictures of ourselves as well as God, so that the entry into the dark night of the spirit in John's scheme is the beginning of a new freedom for us to represent the God whom Jesus decisively represents in his own displacement and dispossession. Our safest eloquence is our silence, says Hooker. Yes, but it is eloquent because of what it has stopped saying, because it is a silence fashioned and framed by the enterprise of speaking our way into the most extreme difficulty. In some ways of using the Buddhist koan, much is made of the need to go on offering verbal reflection or interpretation until exhausted. It will not do to take refuge in silence too easily and too soon. Having once been part of a Buddhist retreat where this was one of the methods used, I can testify to just how very, very difficult this is. Surprisingly, it's very hard to go on talking until you can't. Throughout these lectures, I've been examining not exactly the points at which language breaks down, but the aspects of language that just lead us toward a point of what the Greeks would call aporia, issues or perspectives that cannot be dealt with within the framework we started with. And that doesn't mean that there is in any straightforward way an alternative or higher register in which such questions are resolved, just that the framework we start with is irresistibly oriented towards articulating its own limits, whatever its initial promise may have seemed to be. The way human beings use language, or enjoy, or inhabit, or just experience language, is a subject full of oddities and potential frustrations, if what you're looking for is an account of an orderly behavioral pattern, let alone a causal sequence. And these lectures have been arguing, in effect, that taking seriously the various open-ended issues identified here is one way of reintroducing reference to that unconditioned activity which in the conviction of religious believers surrounds all that we are and all that we say. But it has equally been part of the argument that this requires the closest attention to what we say 
and to how its limits are displayed. And in this following through of the nature of our difficulties and our eccentricities, we've identified at least one aspect in which this account of language converges not only with a general language of the sacred, but specifically with the Christian model of an embodied sacred whose sacredness is inseparable from its silence or marginality, that is, the body of Jesus. What points of convergence could be identified with the themes of other religious traditions I've not explored, though there could no doubt be such explorations? My goal hasn't been to claim that the Christian narrative alone can be shown to do justice to the oddities of human speech, but that the oddity of this doctrinal claim both casts light on and is itself illuminated by a particular account of how we talk. I've come back several times to the idea that a natural theology is going to be an exercise always in mapping difficulty. Clearly distinct from just mapping unsolved problems. By definition, those are problems that belong in an ongoing sequence of questions within a particular discourse. I've been interested in difficulty as the sense of restlessness about the discourse itself at the level at which we've been engaging in it. And as such, that difficulty may generate a new discourse with new sequences of problems, or it may finally push us to the point where we can only gesture towards a discourse that we've no clear way, this side of the grave anyway, of developing in the ordinary way. The difficulties that are of interest to a theologian will be those that bring us to that point of gesturing, to those kinds of representation that go beyond the categories of imitation and reproduction. The theologian will have an eye for kinds of discourse that set up unmanageable paradoxes, either in the sciences or the humanities. Discourses that insist on irony, on some irreducible disjunction between what's said and what is true, but in one way or another unsayable. And the point of connection with theology is certainly not an offer by theology to dissolve the paradoxes and ironies or to name the unnameable. It's that theology will regard these sorts of speech as central to the enterprise of language using rather than marginal and will have a framework in which what is present but unsayable is understood as pervasive and generative. The claims of Christian doctrine, as I've hinted, are to do with pointing as clearly as possible to the focal irony of the unconditioned reality communicating itself not only in conditioned form, but in the ultimate conditionedness of death, a dead body, and matter, Eucharistic food, and written reported speech, scripture, speaking in forms that seem inherently not to have what we normally understand by the power of speech, the power to reply or continue. And finally, <clears throat> if that is where this argument leads, we could say ultimately that our natural theology is not only a way of indicating where language about God comes in, but where language about the speaking self comes in also. Because, you see, I think that it's not just God's existence that is, that is at issue here, but the existence and survival of a certain kind of humanity. Throughout the lectures, I've assumed that particular uses and styles of language are 
if not strictly uniquely, because we can't know that absolutely for certain, distinctively human. Bound into the phenomena of exchange, exploration, uncertainty, trust, error, excess, and so forth. Versions of humanity and of human language, which, deliberately or not, work towards excising some of the difficulties involved in this, are ultimately hostile to that account of humanity which sees it as basically accountable, engaged in growth, risk, and love, shaping itself in relation to what's given. What we say about the processes of language, and specifically about what I've been calling representation, is a way into constructing an anthropology as well as a theology, a doctrine of the human. And as we've seen at earlier stages of these lectures, there are versions of human self-description which in effect make it impossible to understand at all what's going on in the language we actually use, and thus make it, if not impossible, at least unintelligible, that we ourselves should speak. I think that's not an easily sustainable position. I've argued that this means that the most comprehensive and thickly textured account we can give of what's recognizably human is the one that's implicated in concerns about the sacred, about what is not yet said, what is not sayable, what precedes our understanding, and both confirms and challenges specific acts of understanding. Such an account of the human and of human speech doesn't deliver a proof of God's existence. But what it does is to map the territory of human speech in a way that enables us to see that what's affirmed in the language of specific religious ritual and reflection, in the language of revelation, if you will, goes with the grain of what matters most and is most distinctive in anything claiming to be an adequate picture of our speaking humanity. As I've noted, a merely sentimental and impressionistic appeal to mystery is not enough. We have to try and follow through the range of ways in which language incorporates dangerous levels of trust, possibilities of radical error, the strange phenomenon of putting itself under pressure in order to discover things not yet seen or said. And ultimately, what the various languages of revelation propose or imply is that our most fully aware and deliberate and freely accepted silences when the speaker's agenda is most manifestly suspended, are moments where truth, truthfulness, is most evident, where there is the most potent and appropriate act of representing. And because this is a representation of what we can't ever in principle control or contain, we can say this is where the sacred appears. In whatever sense we want to give to the word appears here, inevitably a paradoxical sense. For the Christian revelation, this paradox is articulated with special clarity in the focal image of a bearer of ultimate revelation silenced and immobilized, a place in human history where there is a convergence of two journeys of dispossession, human and divine. Spelling this out, narrating or imaging those journeys of dispossession is what theology does in a variety of modes. The preparatory exercises for theology, which these lectures have sketched, may not compel anyone to a theological sequel, but what they intend is just to hold for a moment 
reverting to language I used in the first lecture, a perception of our language, which allows us to see something of where those limits appear that both energize and disturb what we say. To put some flesh on the notion of our intelligence being ordered or oriented to the unknown. And finally, to suggest that sharing and owning this perception helps us to grasp how a conviction about the sacred as free and active, in a way distantly analogous to our own intelligent action, a conviction implied by a belief in revelation, belongs with the most significant things we can possibly say about the bare fact of being human. Thank you. So we have time for two or three questions. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the political dimensions of silence mm -hmm. and the way we respond to those who have been silenced. Yes. I, as a theologian, am very, have become increasingly aware of the fact that we work in a field which is very white and very male and that it's incumbent on me to hold a kind of silence. But I have no idea how to do that constructively, how to do that as a, as a real response to the situation. And I just wondered if you have any mm. ideas, mm. reflections on that. Yes, thank you. Um, hugely important issue. Um, where to start? It's impossible, certainly, in an environment like this not to notice what you've said about whiteness, maleness, and so forth. Um, impossible not to notice that the colleague on my right is not wholly representative in another sense of what the theological enterprise looks like. Now, it won't do to assume that I, out of my charity, sympathy, and empathy, can speak for someone else to break their silence on their behalf. It won't do either, I think, just to shut up. In the first instance, I think my task is simply to engage directly with the voice that isn't yet there, to see what it is in a, you know, a dispossessed, a humble, and a receptive approach to their voice that can release something for both of us that is neither, neither just the raw explosion of a silenced voice without mediation or communication, nor a reinforcement of my own privilege by, as they claim to speak for them, first of all, speak with, first of all, listen, first of all, see what conversation emerges. And that can be, of course, very hard work because there will be hard things said to us in that process. I, you know, like you, no doubt, I've heard them at times and it's important that we do. But that's where we start, I think. Okay. Yes, the lady on the third row, just in here. Third or fourth row. <coughs> you spoke in an earlier lecture about the second brain hmm. and about the body, you're saying having <coughs> its own identity. 
and that's new scientific concept. How do you think that fits with the ancient Vedic wisdom of stages of speech, like para, and speech coming from, you might say, our true self, rather than learned behaviour, concepts, ideology? So do, do you think there's a link there? It feels to me like there is. Mm. Now that's intriguing. Um, yes, I, I, briefly, I think yes, yes, there is. I'm just trying to tease it out of my own mind. Um, I think we always have to be a little bit cautious about the language of the true self, or you know, the, the real word, as if there were something just waiting there, and all we had to do was burrow down to it. But I do think that there are proper disciplines of breath, posture, bodily reflection, bodily inhabiting, which make other kinds of utterance possible. Um, and can release in us some capacity to speak, to gesture, to communicate in ways which, which do go beyond the cerebral in the narrow sense. Um, I, I'm feeling my way here, but there's, there's certainly something in this, and I guess that um, those in both Eastern and Western religious traditions who have written and reflected on on bodily inhabiting and what that does to our language and our perceiving would, would recognize something of what's being talked about. And what happens to language in that state um, is, is well worth further thought. The late Metropolitan Anthony Bloom used to say that Christian doctrine was the deposit of what happened when we thought about what occurred in the body during prayer. Gentleman at the back. Yes, thank you. Is this on? Sorry. Um, you mentioned at the end about areas of paradox and irony being amongst the most sort of, I'm not sure all your words were sort of expressive, as it were, of examining what you're referring to about God. And in the concept of the Trinity, the idea that the Christian understanding of God being at the same time three persons and one um, is, an, is one of the most remarkable sort of paradoxes, as it were. And I remember Jeremy Begbie, the, who is both a musicologist and, and a theologian, once playing first one note, the second note, and then a third note, and saying, when you play all three notes together, you have a chord in which you can hear them individually and the whole thing together. He said, there is a representation of the Trinity without words, without pictures. I just wondered what was going on there. Because, I mean, is music just a different language, as it were? And, and, it's, and everything you, you've said would apply as applied to music. Or is something else going on? Thank you very much. Um, I, I'm a great admirer of Jeremy Begbie's work. And that image of the chord for the Trinity is one that I've actually used myself in confirmation classes before now. Um, of course, you know, music is, is language. It is intelligible communication. What it isn't is the representation of ideas and, and pictures. And we, we really struggle, I think, to say exactly what, what sort of communication it is. Roger Scruton's work on the philosophy of music is, is of interest 
I think, in that, that connection, great interest. And the, the Trinity is, is, in fact, a very, very good illustration of the sort of paradox that um, Margaret Masterman writes about in the paper I mentioned the other day. Um, as if, right from the start, Christian doctrine is saying, you will not be able to have um, a one-level account of how this works. There are contexts in which it is imperative that you talk about the divine life as impelling you from within towards <coughs> the divine life without, and that those are, are seriously different poles of a relationship. And there are moments where you will need to talk about the unity of the divine um, with enormous clarity and focus in order to deliver yourself from various sorts of idolatry. Um, and the trick is, and nobody's going to tell you how to do it in advance, the trick is to know which context you're in and how to skip even within one sentence or one clause of a prayer from one moment to the other. So you know, paradox is, that's why paradox is not just flat contradiction. It's that nimbleness of interweaving the levels and the perspectives at which language is working. And music provides, certainly for me as for Jeremy Begbie, one of the most effective clumps of elusive metaphor for handling that. So it's Nick, Nick Adams. Oh, sorry, he's on the third. Sorry, he's on the third row. <coughs> One of the wonderful gifts that the Gifford Lectures make possible is a certain kinds of reflection on the relationship between theology and philosophy. And there's been a strand of a certain kind of philosophical appreciation running through all of your lectures. And <coughs> in the symphonic themes that keep being sounded again and again and which were re recapitulated at the end, there's a certain concern with order and meaning and trying to, to, to feel our way towards order a certain recognition of dispossession and restraint and, and, and that, that dimension of things, but also the transfer and, and, and extension of life, which came up very strongly to begin with. Mm. Um, and I was wondering whether in your own reflections on how philosophy becomes part of the discourse of theology and, and is bound up with it, without being presumptuous and thinking that theologians should tell philosophers what to do, which is absolutely not what I'm inviting. Do you feel that there's room in contemporary philosophical discourse, as well as the very emphatic concern with order that one di uh, discerns in it, that there, there could be room for more of a concern with dispossession and just life in philosophy? That's a great challenge, yes. Theologians saying to philosophers, get a life. <laughs> I, I, hope it, I hope it's not quite like that. Um, Yes, I, I think that precisely there, there are questions theologians and indeed others put, others in the humanities put consistently to philosophers um, when all has been said and done about the conceptual mapping that you're involved in. What then is there to say about what it is that allows truth to occur? What is it that needs to be said about, yes, about the passage of life? 
which is a way of saying, you know, we need we need philosophies of history, we need philosophies of time, we need well, we need philosophies of language as it actually works. Um, and in the last hundred years, in wildly different ways, some of the greatest names, of course, in philosophy have been attempting to do just that. Um, just to say the obvious, you know, Wittgenstein, Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty, these massive figures, all in their different ways are, I think, responding to that kind of question. Interestingly, of course, all of them have highly um, complex and conflicted approaches to theology, or let alone belief. But I think all of them are extremely fruitful interlocutors for the theologian and an encouragement to the theologian to find further philosophical interlocutors with whom that might be opened up. Thank you. Maybe one final question. Yes, the lady at the back. <clears throat> I wonder if I could mention Ian McGilchrist again that you started with. By all means. <laughs> because what I think we're touching on here is process rather than content. Ah. And what I'm interested in is McGilchrist saying the quality of the attention we pay contributes to what we perceive. And why I'm picking that up is your references throughout to difficulty and ease. Mm -hmm. And I think you've got a commitment to struggling with difficulty and that there's something in that that may say, it's, it's, a, it's about your point that many in the humanities would, would that you've just said, mm -hmm. would challenge mm -hmm. philosophers because it's about practice. Mm -hmm. And I think Ian McGilchrist's point about attention brings that into focus and it's bigger than theology. Yeah. And I just wondered if you had some mm. thoughts on, around that theme. Yes, yes. Yes, thank you so much for that. Um, thanks for the allusion again to McGilchrist. And thank you for um, you know, highlighting that, that fundamental question about difficulty and ease. It's not exactly that somebody like Ian McGilchrist is saying... Um, I'm trying to make it difficult in the sense of making it harder to get to a solution. More that he's saying, recognize the kind of difficulty that comes up when you try to think only in this mode. And recognize the depth of the temptation to make it simpler and resist. Stay with the difficulty that the discourse is generating and as you rightly say, attend to where the difficulty comes. Why is this hard? Back to the, um, the koan meditation. The, the method used in some Chan schools dealing with the koan is that you sit opposite somebody else and for quite a long period you say what you think can be said about the koan you've been given. And you go on and on and on with that sitting with the, the grittiness of what's being given and taking your time to get to the point where you say, through this attention, this very sustained and articulated attention, eventually something else generates. 
And that's, that's what I'm most interested in. That's, I think, what the humanities themselves are, are most profoundly about. Um, and I don't, again, here, want to oppose the humanities and the sciences in any glib way, because it's what the sciences in a serious sense are about as well, given that I would say neither sciences nor humanities are just about problem solving. They are intensely about attention. That is what the, let me be metaphysically bold in these last couple of minutes, that is what the human intellect is about. It is about dis, the dispossessing kind of attention that generates a truthfulness we couldn't otherwise come to. It, it is, as the classical philosophers and the medievals said, it is philosophy as a spiritual discipline. And that, in that sense, something which affects all our intellectual activity. And I would hope, you know, if anything, to leave this audience with some sense of the <coughs> astonishing character of the intellectual enterprise regarded in that sort of light. The joy, as well as the, um, the asceticism that goes with that. Ladies and gentlemen, my words are going to seem rather shallow after what you've heard over the last few weeks. But I'd like to take this opportunity to give a very brief but very personal vote of thanks to Lord Williams through a couple of reflections, not in the lectures, I wouldn't presume, but on the man behind the lectures. A few years ago when I worked at that most other august institution, Glasgow University, I held a public conversation with Rowan Williams. He was open to being asked any question either by me or the 900-strong audience. The response to the evening was overwhelmingly positive, and the only criticism I received was from a couple of bishops who said to me afterwards, you let him off too easily. <laughs> well, I don't think that in the last two weeks we have let him off easily during the course of these lectures or the Q&A that followed. You have consistently and imaginatively captivated the audience every time you have spoken. When Rowan Williams was Archbishop of Canterbury, he chaired a series of annual seminars called The Building Bridges, which brought together a number of Christian and Muslim scholars from around the world to discuss scriptural and theological themes in their broadest sense. On one such occasion, we got onto the theme of revelation. And I asked the group, I would like my Christian colleagues to explain what they understand by revelation. And I still remember how they all glanced at one another as if slightly panicked and then turned their heads towards Lord Williams and said, that one's for you, Archbishop. <laughs> Throughout these seminars, what has gradually dawned on me was that one of the reasons Rowan Williams spoke well was because he listened well. And that in itself is a skill and an art. Talking is an act of the self, but listening is an act of generosity, of humility. And I think that what we have enjoyed in the course of these lectures, apart from the odd moment of complexity, are some extraordinary insights into the most fundamental and ordinary thing we do as human beings use language. During his stay, 
he has not only devoted time to preparing and delivering these lectures, but also given so much of his energy and goodwill to conversations with students, members of the public, giving seminars and holding public conversations. And of course, he examined a PhD thesis today as well. For your lectures, for your time, for the intellectual inspiration and generosity and the warmth you have shown, to use one of your earlier phrases, we can tell you how grateful we are. We're very grateful. Thank you. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.